All right, so we begin on page 93. We are moving into a new topic, um, as it's been with all these weeks. Prepare to use your brains and prepare for some confusion and weird names and odd circumstances, but really important truths. We've moved on from the creeds, right? The name of this class is Credo, and we looked at the four main early creeds, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, we've seen the Chalcedonian Definition, and last week we looked at the Athanasian Creed. There's one final conflict. There's one final issue that we need to look at, and I've artificially made our cutoff date the year 500. And so last week, we ended in the year 451 with the Chalcedonian definition, and then the Athanasian Creed, whenever that was written. Well, we didn't? We didn't? Was I there for that? Are we really? Wow. Okay. Turn. Thank you, Diane. Most of what I said to you was not true. Page 83. And so those notes you will find in your back, in the back there. So if you don't have page 83, they're back there also. You can go grab yourself some, raise your hand. Okay, so we're still in the late 400s. The Athanasian Creed, page 83. This is the fourth and final creed that we're looking at in our time together. So here's some details to be aware of. The, the Athanasian Creed, you might recognize that name from that guy that we met, oh, 125 years ago, named Athanasius. And this creed is named after him. But the origins of this creed are unknown. Um, All historians can do is look back and they begin to see it popping up in different places. It's generally believed that it was written in the 400s, though some scholars say it was written in the 600s. So there's some debate. So if it's the 600s, I'm cheating in our class and going into the future. Because it doesn't show up in historical records until 633 at the Council of Toledo. Now, if it was written at an early date, which I think it was, and many authors, or some, many scholars do, there's debate. Possible writers of this creed, uh, some have suggested Ambrose of Milan or Augustine of Hippo. By the way, Augustine was saved under the preaching ministry of Ambrose of Milan. But it was likely a Frenchman, Vincent of Larens, I don't know how to say that in French, in the 400s, 
And the reason that's proposed is in 1940, there was a document by Vincent that was discovered and it contains much of the language of the Athanasian Creed. So either he wrote it or he was deeply influenced by it, which would place it somewhere around the year 440. The earliest known copy of the creed was included in the prefix to a collection of many sermons, homilies, by uh, Caesareus of Arles in 542. So that's just important information for you to have. The title, Athanasian Creed, appears to be in honor of Athanasius. Remember, he died back in 373. And it certainly accords with the theology that he defended. The creed was written in Latin, not Greek. And it often goes by its opening phrase. See if I remember how to say this. Um, Que cum que volt. And that's the opening lines, whosoever wishes. So if you want to learn some cool Latin, there you go. As we get into the creed, it consists of 42 articles in three parts. The first part we're going to hear addresses the Trinity, and it relies heavily on Augustine's ideas and even quotes from some of his writings, specifically one of his books on the Trinity, on the Trinity and it quotes him verbatim. Part two defends the two natures of Christ that we looked at last week. That Chalcedon explained, and it summarizes uh, summarizing the results of fourth and fifth century debates, uh, presenting them in nearly distilled, neatly distilled in lyrical Latin form, and then part three, which is the final sentence, is condemnation for those who reject the teaching. The Athanasian Creed was counted as one of the three classic creeds by the reformers. So think Calvin. John Knox up in Scotland, and a bunch of different reformers, Luther. Both Lutheran and Reformed confessional statements recognize the authority of the Athanasian Creed, except for the Westminster Confession. That's a Presbyterian confession. I don't know why they didn't include it, but it's not in it. But it doesn't necessarily mean that they reject it. The Athanasian Creed is majestic in its form, It's lyrical in nature. It serves as a summary of the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, along with the Chalcedonian definition. So all these weeks that we've been together, all the different confusions and heresies and heretics and all the ways the teaching of the Bible, the message of the gospel has been assaulted or confused, the Athanasian Creed is like a it's like a bow on the package. It's the star on the tree. It's just really beautiful. And um, if you go back and read the previous creeds and the Chalcedonian definition, and then read the Athanasian Creed, you'll see how it summarizes it all together in many ways. And one thing that's pretty amazing is if you take time, and I encourage you to do so, to read through the creed, Athanasian Creed, see if you can detect refutations of leading heresies that we've already covered. So, for example, this is a real quick survey of our time together. The first heresy that we came across was the Judaizers. And those were the guys in the Bible, 
right? So read the book of Galatians. And they're the ones who change the gospel by adding to the gospel. They made it the gospel plus works equals salvation. Whereas we know from the Bible that it's not works, it's faith. We're saved by grace through faith. So you're going to hear that flavored in what we're about to read. We met the Gnostics. And these were guys who taught the gospel plus secret knowledge. Really, for them, it was a different God. They had all these different gods, you may remember. But for them, they said, yeah, you need your Bible, but you also need extra secret knowledge that that we're going to give to you, pulling it in from different religions, Buddhism, Zoroastrianism, which which was a Persian religion. And that's in contrast to the biblical message of Jesus. Remember, the Gnostics taught that the Old Testament God was a different God. And when he created, he was basically Satan. Satan was the good guy trying to rescue people from Elohim's evil creation. Gnosticism. Go back in your notes. Enjoy all that heresy. Then we met Marcion. He was another type of Gnostic. But he was the guy who said the gospel minus most of the Bible equals salvation. So he was the guy who said... All the Old Testament, burn it, get rid of it. He's the guy who's, he was one who made a Jefferson Bible. He's the guy who cut out almost all the New Testament. Anything that seemed Jewish in his perspective had to be cut out. So he had this, remember the joke was he had a semi-New Testament with Psalms and Proverbs. That's kind of what he had. Then there was Montanus. And he and his two prophetesses, was, well, you need the Bible, you need the gospel, but you also need a lot of new, fresh moves of the Spirit. You need new, fresh revelation on top of the Bible, which kind of supersedes the Bible. And so the church got together and said, nope. Then we went to modalism. And that was the gospel divided by a God who changes his modes. If this doesn't make sense to you because you weren't here for these things, don't sweat it. You can grab the notes and read them on the way out. But all of these things are uh, flavored into the, the Athanasian Creed. So modalism was the God, was God is not triune. God is one. He's a monad. And he just changes his form to suit the, the needs. So kind of angry, mean, Old Testament God kind Jesus in the Gospels, and then he changes into the Spirit in the church. But he's not one God in three persons. He's just changes his modes, modalism. And we know that that's a heresy that's alive and well today in oneness Pentecostalism and various types of Pentecostal churches. Not all Pentecostal churches, but certain species of Pentecostal churches. We were confronted with Arianism, And that guy, Arius, taught that Jesus is not the eternal Son of God, but that Jesus is a created being, one of many gods who's a lesser god. And this heresy of Arianism is alive and well, especially in Jehovah's Witness. They are Arians to the core. And this is flavored into Latter-day Saints or Mormonism, an idea of many gods. Then we met Nestorius last week. 
And that was the gospel plus a golem Jesus. The schizophrenic multiple personality disorder Jesus. Where he said that Jesus was actually two people in a human body. And there's kind of a switch that went from sometimes you needed to go God mode and sometimes you needed to go man mode and he switched between the two. That's not true. Jesus is one person with two natures. We've also looked at Apollinarianism and that was the gospel plus a shell of a man, Jesus, right? That was, he taught, well, Jesus was human on the outside that you could touch him, but on the inside, he was all divine. His divinity basically overshadowed his humanity. The imagery was that his humanity was like a drop of wine in an ocean of deity, but we learn that, nope, God is, Jesus is actually truly God and truly man. And then we finished last time looking at Eutychianism. And all these names are weird names because they're strange names named after the heretic. And then Eutychianism was the gospel plus a third type of being, Jesus. Remember, he's the one who taught, no, when Jesus became incarnate through the Virgin Mary... His divinity and humanity fused into yellow and blue, make green a new type of thing. Nope. He's, Jesus is one person with two natures. So there's a quick review for all of the crazy things that we've looked at in the first uh, 450 years of the church and different false teachings that arose. So now let's listen to the Athanasian Creed. I want to read the whole creed. Then we're going to circle back, and I'm just going to make a few brief comments, and then I'll take questions. But before I read the Athanasian Creed, any questions or clarifications on all those heretics and heresies you know so well? Our brains are hurting And that's okay. It's a good thing. Here's the Athanasian Creed. And the numbering system here is the numbering that's delivered to us. Whosoever or whoever desires to be saved should above all hold to the Catholic faith. Anyone who does not keep it whole and unbroken will doubtlessly perish eternally. Now, this is the lowercase c, universal faith, Catholic faith. That we worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity. Neither confounding the persons nor dividing the essence. For the person of the Father is a distinct person. The person of the Son is another and that of the Holy Spirit still another. But the divinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one. The glory equal. The majesty co-eternal. Such as the Father is, such is the Son, and such is the Holy Spirit. The Father is uncreated. The Son is uncreated. The Holy Spirit is uncreated. The Father is immeasurable. The Son is immeasurable. The Holy Spirit is immeasurable. The Father is eternal, the Son is eternal, the Holy Spirit is eternal. And yet, there are not three eternal beings, 
there is but one eternal being. So too, there are not three uncreated or immeasurable beings, but there is one uncreated and immeasurable being. Similarly, the Father is almighty, the Son is almighty, the Holy Spirit is almighty. Yet there are not three almighty beings, there is but one almighty being. Thus, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. Yet there are not three gods, there is but one God. Thus, the Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, the Holy Spirit is Lord. Yet there are not three lords, there is but one Lord. Just as Christian truth compels us to confess each person individually as both God and Lord... So universal religion forbids us to say that there are three gods or lords. The Father was neither made nor created nor begotten from anyone. The Son was neither made nor created. He was begotten from the Father alone. The Holy Spirit was neither made nor created nor begotten. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. Accordingly, there is one Father, not three fathers. There is one Son, not three sons. There is one Holy Spirit, not three Holy Spirits. None in this Trinity is before or after. None is greater or smaller. In their eternity, the three persons are co-eternal and co-equal with each other. So in everything... As was said earlier, the unity in Trinity, the Trinity in unity, is to be worshipped. Anyone then who desires to be saved should think thus about the Trinity. But it is necessary for eternal salvation that one also believe in the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ faithfully. Now this is the true faith that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son, is both God and man equally. He is God from the essence of the Father, begotten before time, and He is man from the essence of His mother, born in time. Completely God, completely man, with a rational soul and human flesh equal to the Father as regards divinity, less than the Father as regards humanity. Although he is God and man, yet Christ is not two, but one. He is one, however, not by his divinity being turned into flesh or by God's taking humanity to himself. He is one, certainly not by blending of his essence, but by the unity of his person. For just as one man is both rational soul and flesh, so too the one Christ is both God and man. He suffered for our salvation. He descended to the grave. He rose from the dead on the third day. He ascended to heaven. He is seated at the Father's right hand. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. At his coming... All people will arise bodily and give an accounting of their own deeds. Those who have done good will enter eternal life. Those who have done evil will enter eternal fire. 
this is the Catholic or universal faith that one cannot be saved without believing it firmly and faithfully. Amen. It would take time to go back through, and it's something I recommend that you consider doing, and just think through the rifling of all the different heresies, reading through all the previous creeds, and see how this one, this brilliantly, poetically, lyrically, beautifully written statement puts those guardrails on either side of the road to make sure that we don't drive off either side into a heretical ditch of either a wrong understanding of the Trinity or a wrong understanding of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Beautiful, beautiful words. It's beautiful how even from the Latin coming into English, it still flows so well. And in many ways, this is the capstone of everything we've been working towards to get to this statement. Because it really has that summary of everything that's, that's come before. It's the cover letter uh, to all the other creeds. I want to walk through it by its sections. And then here, if a question arises, raise your hand and a, and a, um, a mic will come to you. And we'll, we'll start going through this. I don't want to go into it in super detail. Because uh, a lot of it is ground we've already covered. But just point out some areas of clarification that they make. We might need things along those lines. So, number one, and number one being this is how they've numbered it themselves. Whoever desires to be saved should above all hold to the Catholic faith. Now, note that this creed is a summary of all the gospel uh, buffeted by all the heresies it seeks to refute. When it says that if you desire to be saved, this means that someone cannot knowingly know this information and then deny it. So this is something that we've talked about often on over our weeks together. In other words, we know that when someone gets saved, part of our salvation is is believing in the Trinity, one God and three persons, right? Jesus tells us, go baptize Matthew 28, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One name, but it's three names. So when someone is getting baptized, and you say, I'm now going to baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and they stop and say, what? What are you talking about? Part of salvation is understanding the Trinity. Now, you don't need a PhD in the Trinity, but with all the heresies that come up, the Athanasian Creed clarifies this for us. So if someone was to read this and say, no, this statement of the Trinity not true, then they're denying a distillation and summary of what the Bible teaches. So that, that's why it's, it's helpful, it's good, it's right for them to say, whoever desires to be saved should above all hold to this universal faith. And remember, Catholic means universal. If it's a capital C, that means the Roman Catholic Church. If it's a lowercase c, it just means universal. So it says in number two, anyone who does not keep it whole and unbroken will doubtless perish eternally. So generations and denominations widespread have all agreed with this statement on the gospel. So just a few observations. 
on the Trinity. This is part one. So number three. Now this is the Catholic faith that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. Just want to point out that this is the first time we've actually seen the word Trinity put into a creed. It's been thrown around ever since Irenaeus way back, I don't remember when, late 100s, 200s. But finally, the word is being used formally in a very broad sense. Just something to to note. Go down to number six. But the divinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one. The glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. When they put that word co-eternal in there, that conveys that neither the Son or Spirit are created. They cannot have been created because they are co-eternal. They have existed, so to speak, as long as the Father has existed because he's one God. So they put the word co-eternal in there. They are timeless. He is eternal as the one God. Any questions on co-eternal? The Father is, this is number nine, the Father is immeasurable, the Son is immeasurable, the Spirit is immeasurable. So we spent a lot of time thinking about last week, what does it mean that God the Son became flesh? The person of the, second person of the Trinity took humanity to himself. What's going on there? Well, one thing to note here is, is that when Jesus became incarnate, as to his divine nature, he never stopped being immeasurable. Make sense? (laughs) Whereas his divinity was confined to his personhood as the Christ. So we marveled and could not figure out how Mary had to teach baby Jesus to speak Hebrew while at the same time baby Jesus was upholding the universe by the word of his power. When you figure that out, please let me know. Down to number 23. Just showing you here that the controversy remains... The Holy Spirit, number 23 says, was neither made nor created nor begotten. Why? Because the Son was begotten, but the Spirit proceeds. The Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. And we learned last time, um, or before that, that this there's a controversy between the Eastern Orthodox Church. They reject the idea that the Spirit proceeds from the Son. So just just showing you that it made it into the creed here also. And you can go back in your notes and, and look at that. So before we move on to, from what the Athanasian Creed talks about, the Trinity, any questions that are arising? Any, any clarifications that might be needed? Anything you want to ask for a neighbor? I'm nervous when there's no questions. Okay, let's move on to the incarnation. 
or you guys are so well taught, so brilliant, and have read your notes so much, makes perfect sense. That's it. That's it. You know, one of the, uh, I just, here's a side note. When, when I first went to seminary, one of the things that was such a blessing to me, so, so profound, is I learned that there were so many things I didn't even know I needed to think about. And that I was, I remember sitting in class, it was a big lecture hall, my first classes, it was like systematic theology too, whatever that was about. And I remember sitting in the class and I remember the professor is going through all this nerd stuff. And I, and I remember just having to put my pen down and I, and I put my hands on the table so no one could see in a posture of worship because I thought it was so amazing learning these things about the Lord. And I was embarrassed for, for feeling that way. Um, and my brain hurt at the same time. And, and w- when we approach the Bible, we're encountering the eternal God who is an uncreated being that has always existed and he is not like us. But he has made us in his image. And he's made him noble uh, to us. And what our grandparents, what our grandfathers have done is they've helped clarify who he is against false teachings. And so that's... So if, if you find yourself losing heart, if you find yourself, I don't understand any of this, and you're embarrassed to say something, we're all like that. You're in good company. But one of the beauties of these is to make this, I would encourage you, take these creeds and make it a, a regular part of your devotional life. Spend more time reading the Bible and thinking about it. But then when you read the creeds, they make you think about the Bible. And it helps you understand who the Lord is. So, not in your notes, that was free. So now let's think about on the incarnation, number 32. Uh, rehearsing some things from last time. We're learning that Jesus is completely God and completely a man. It can be translated truly. Where's John? It can be translated as truly there. Completely God and completely a man with a rational soul and human flesh. Now, Remember, we hear rational and we just think that someone can be rational or irrational. They think or they're a bad thinker or they're overly emotional. Remember, that's not what this means. Remember, back then, one of the arguments was they were trying to figure out what it meant to be made in the image of God. And for many of them, they thought, hmm, image of God must mean that we can think, we have a mind. And that's the image of God, so they thought. And then remember that we encountered a heretic who said, Well, there's no way Jesus could have had a human mind. He could not have been rational because that's where sin is. And Jesus had no sin, therefore he wasn't rational. So so what they're putting here is, no, Jesus really had a true mind and a true will and he really was rational because he really was human. Number 37 For just as one man is both rational soul and flesh, us, so too the one Christ is both God and man. So they're making a comparison here with Jesus being God and man the same way that we are body and soul or uh, mind and soul. And then finally, or almost finally, he suffered for our salvation, 
He descended to hell. He rose from the dead on the third day. Just remember, we spent some time thinking about this phrase, descended into hell. And it is, it is, it is wrong to think that Jesus went to the place of punishment and was punished and or was in the flames where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's not what they intend to mean. That's not what it means. It's because we have a modern day wrong understanding of the grave. The grave before Jesus ascended, before the cross, before the empty tomb, all believers or actually every human being who died went down to Sheol, the grave. And there was a place of torment and punishment and there was a place of comfort and rest. Jesus went to the place of comfort and rest. That's what it means by he descended into hell, to the grave. Now, this creed also keeps going. We, have, we finally have the ascension. He ascended into heaven. He's seated at the Father's right hand. He's going to come back and judge the living and the dead. And here's some new information compared to the other creeds. At his coming, all will rise bodily. So the righteous and wicked will all rise bodily. They'll get their bodies again and will give an accounting of their own deeds. And those who have done good will enter eternal life and those who have done evil will enter eternal fire. If you took this soundbite, it might be mistaken to teach that you need to do good works to be saved. And we've spent a lot of time looking at this. That that's not what's happening. This is a direct quote from John 5, 29. And, and the idea that we learn is that good works and bad works flow from a certain type of heart. A Jesus heart that's been regenerate, born again, or an unsaved, unregenerate heart. So it's not teaching works by salvation. So... Um, it just, and then here, if you go back and read it, I'm just noting that if you read all of those lines, 1, 2, 3, 28, 29, 30, 44, they all refer to faith and belief and thinking for salvation, not works. So the creed assumes justification by faith. Just really important reading that. Um, any questions on section two on the incarnation and ministry of Jesus Christ? And then we simply have the closing warning, number 44. This is the Catholic faith, universal faith. It's what everyone should believe. One cannot be saved without believing it firmly and faithfully. Given all that scripture teaches and all the heresy has threatened so far in our study... The Athanasian Creed unpacks what it means when we confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead. And it helps us, it, it shows us what it means that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God from Matthew 16, 16. And this, is, and th this information is included when Jesus instructs us to teach his disciples all that he commanded. That's something to think about. When discipling others, or you want to meet up for a, for a friend and just talk some theology, pull out one of the creeds 
and walk through and really just think, what, what does this mean? What is this saying? What is it not saying? How does it help us? This is a discipleship tool. A person confess, a person can confess that Jesus is Lord and Christ, but if they deny or reject what is taught about the Trinity or the Incarnation, they reject the gospel. I will say, in this creed, when they talk about Jesus' descent into the grave, and the argument we looked at last week about whether or not the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Son, I do not think that those are salvation issues. Because there are other orthodox positions that hold different understandings of where Jesus went for three days when he died. And also uh, people who are not convinced about Jesus, the spirit proceeding from Jesus. So I am going against what this Athanasian Creed says. Uh, You can choose your own adventure and decide how how you want to land on that. When we wrap up the the creeds here with this final beautiful one, I want to remind us that theological clarity is born out of theological controversy. And the whole reason these creeds exist is because someone stood up and said, there's no such thing as the Trinity. And then the church had to say, yes, there is. That word's not in the Bible. Okay, and then they had to argue about showing the doctrine of the Trinity. Or a guy steps up and says, Jesus is a created being. He's not the eternal son of God. That requires an answer. And so sometimes I think Christians can naively just throw out all of church history. And they can reject all of the creeds, thinking that no creed but the Bible. The thing is, heretics also agree, no creed but the Bible. And the problem is when someone says no creed but the Bible, you know what that really means? It's how they interpret the Bible. So it requires humility and wisdom to look at what our grandparents taught. Read the Bible. Read church history. Read it in the Bible and community of fellow believers. And to check ourselves to make sure that we don't become accidental or deliberate heretics. Theological clarity is born out of theological controversy. And finally, why does this exist? Theology fuels doxology. If this stops at simply, if, if your heart does not ultimately get warmed to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, if you don't find your love kindled, if you don't find your appreciation for the gospel growing, if you don't find yourself shrinking in humility and awe at God's kindness and his love to us, then theology is not yet having its proper effect in your heart. And so the word doxology, it means um, word of worship. It's a word of praise. I read a doxology at the end of every service from the end of Jude. So, So this is not academic exercises alone. This is not just so that we can put um, orthodox ammo into our shotguns to shoot down heretics and say, take that, heretic. It's most importantly to love Jesus more. So please don't lose sight of that. Any questions on the Athanasian Creed?
Yes, Rick. I know you have a summary further on in the graph, but would you say this last creed we covered supersedes the other? Because I always hear of people referring to the Nicene Creed. Um, it seems to me this one has taken it even further in clarity. And would you say that this is the creed we should be most focused on? That, that is, thank you for asking that. That's such a good question. Um, when they wrote these, the expectation is that you would have the Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed, Chalcedonian Definition, and Athanasian Creed, those four all together. So, for example, I, I said last week that when they wrote the Chalcedonian Definition explaining what does it mean that Jesus is incarnate, they intended that to be a footnote to the Nicene Creed. So um, they would not say one takes precedence over the other. They each have a different purpose. So take them all together. Really good question. Thanks for, thanks for asking that. So I, I uh, regurgitated this slide that we saw before of all this confusing words. Here's a, a picture's worth a thousand words, right? Well, he, well here it is. This is essentially drawn from, for example, the Athanasian Creed. So this picture shows us in diagram form, you have God in the middle. Oh, I got to avoid the heresy trying to explain this to us. Look, see, there it is. I can't say anything. You have the, you have the, the, um, the, God in his essence, in his usia. Remember all that fun stuff? And, and here's what happens. You read your Bible. This is just reading your Bible. And you learn the Father is God. Of course. But then we learn that, but wait a second, the Son is God. But wait, the Holy Spirit is God. But there's only one God but each is God. And then we learn that the Son glorifies the Spirit and the Spirit glorifies the Son and we learn the Father is not the Son and the Son is not the Father. But the Father is in the Son and the Son is in the Father and we are Trinitarian because when you smush together all that the Bible teaches about who this amazing being is, he's this. There's only one true God and yet, there he is. And we should, that's why I said we should marvel, because this is the never not existing being. Meaning he's always existed. So before the universe was created, God had forever been there. Think about that. It makes my wheels fall off. So what we have here in these final pages, uh, wanting to synthesize together the four statements, Apostles, Nicene, Chalcedonian, and Athanasian Creed. And I want to show you how they harmonize or fit together. 
and where each part is commenting on the other. Now, I recognize that size 6 font. I cannot read it with my own eyes. So don't try to, or do it if you want to. It's just for you to see how it all fits together. So as I'm scrolling, and before we get to now, the Athanasian uh, uh, Augustine, now are there any questions, comments? Does anybody think the Athanasian Creed is beautiful? Okay, five of you. Praise the Lord. So we're moving on and we're moving into a brand new subject. Yes, Pastor Scott. Your beard's coming in very well, by the way. Thanks. <laughs> um, so were there more than four? And there, I'm assuming there were more than four, but there were just ones that were lesser in importance or ones that were basically encapsulated in these four? Yes, brother, there are. There's actually more than I know, pr- probably more than we can count. Encyclopedias worth, uh, as time goes on and as Eastern Orthodoxy becomes more Eastern Orthodox and as Catholicism becomes more Roman Catholicism, they would have tons of councils and write different things. There's controversies that are going to rise on, uh, there's an iconoclastic controversy. Can you have images, so all the um, idols that we think Roman Catholics have, and the icons Ethan Orthodox have, there was a huge thing on that one. There's a huge debate later on, I think like in the 1300s, on whether or not Jesus in his incarnation has one will or two wills. And did the will of the divine and the will of the human fuse into one? So, Without getting into that, yes. But these four are called the ecumenical creeds because they're the most broadly received by Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholic, with qualifications, and Protestants. So when I said at the beginning there that uh, at the Reformation, Lutherans and others included the Athanasian Creed in their confessions. So a creed is a gospel statement and a confession is a larger theological statement of a particular tradition, Baptist confession, Presbyterian confession, things like that. Does that answer your question? Mm-hmm. Thanks for asking that. That was a really good question. What else? Any, any other uh, open season questions? Yes, sir. Um, with all these creeds and stuff, I mean, it's, it feels like I have to believe all these stuff again. What? And all that, where does that put Romans 10, 9, and 10? Such a good question. So Romans 10, 9, and 10 says that if you believe in your heart, or if you confess it, if you, what does Romans 10, 9, and 10 say? <laughs> if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. I would say that these are um, like, a, like a commentary explaining what that means. Because then you you have a guy who shows up and says, I believe Jesus is Lord. He's just one of many, many, many gods, and you're going to become a god too. Wait a second. We're confessing a different Jesus. So that's, um, they're explaining that. Really, very good question. What else? 
Onward, Christian soldiers, to our final topic, Augustine versus Darth Pelagius. Does anybody get that joke? There's two nerds in here, me and Porter Cochran. Oh, is a smile. Oh, okay, look at all. Yes, 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 yes. Augustine, I, you can say Augustine. We have Amy Augustine who's employed with us, but technically speaking, Augustine is pronounced Augustine. Um, versus Pelagius. And the reason I have Darth there for the nerds among us is there's a scene in Star Wars when Palpatine is talking to Anakin and turning him to the dark side and talks about Darth Pelagius. If that means nothing to you, don't let it mean anything to you. We are entering into a huge topic, which, since I also forgot that we didn't cover Athanasius, this will go into next week, Lord willing. So let's think about this together. Let me see if I can. The main battles for salvation in all these weeks that we have seen in church history They have been over the authority and extent of the canon of the scripture. How do you know what's Bible and it's not Bible? And have Christians, should we be adding to the Bible? We've seen that the battle for salvation has been focused on the identity and relationship of God the Father, Son, and Spirit, right? The Trinity. And we've also seen that much of the controversy has been over the meaning and the boundaries and the implications of Jesus being truly God and truly man, our Christology. So in other words, the focus of our time together, because of church history, the focus of heresy and orthodoxy has been on the Bible, on God, and the incarnation. There so far has only been one battle for salvation that had more of a focus on humanity than God, and that's what we saw at the very beginning with the Judaizers in the book of Galatians. They're the ones who taught that salvation needed works to be saved. Well, now we're taking a a step back by about 50 years, and we're meeting Pelagius. And Pelagius proved to be the next heretic focused more on us, the nature of humanity, and our relationship to salvation. Pelagius' theology ultimately redefines the work of Christ and the gospel. That's why he's a heretic. But what makes him a heretic is what he says about us and not about Jesus. And what he says about you and me as humans forces the gospel to be changed. And Jesus becomes a different kind of savior That is not a savior. That's why he's Darth Pelagius. He's the dark side. So let's learn about this guy, the heretic Pelagius. So we don't know when he was born, but we know that his ministry was in Rome from 383 to 417. So he was a British monk. He moves to Rome in 383. He was disgusted. And he was grieved by the ungodliness, the worldliness, the flagrant sin he found among Roman Christians, especially the clergy. 
So Pelagius set his heart to be a model and influence for godly living. That's a good thing. He gathered and multiplied disciples, and it appears that his intent was not to create a monastic order, which at that time, to be a monk or nun, was the highest achievement a Christian could reach. So if you wanted to be a super Christian, you had to be a monk or a nun. But this guy, interestingly, he didn't want them to retreat from the world into caves in the wilderness. He wanted people to be faithful monks who lived like Christ in their daily lives. It's pretty interesting. So stay in their businesses, kept doing what they're doing, stay in politics, but be faithful to Jesus in your daily life. All of that, we can say yes and amen to. He wanted to be like Jesus. He'd read his Bible, see what Jesus' ethic was, and he wanted to obey it. That's all good. Unfortunately for Pelagius, his ardent zeal for holy living was wedded to a rather unorthodox theology. His views on God were orthodox. He accepted the Nicene Creed. And remember, the Athanasian Creed hadn't been written yet. It was, however, his views on human nature on the one hand, and then how those views changed the gospel and the work of Jesus on the other that led to his excommunication. And I know that you're hoping for it, and you get it. Pelagianism's 18 premises. Here's his first premise. God's highest attributes are his his righteousness and justice. Now, at first, we would say, that sounds right. But um, this is a conversation for a different time. But this is actually elevating certain attributes of God over other attributes. And God does not elevate his attributes over his attributes. And when you make him more of one attribute than another, you get into the sin of reductionism. So that's alive and well today. So people really like the statement, God is love. And then you can probably see where you, what road you start to go down on that. Well, then if God is love, love is love, and we can see that be whatever gender you want and marry whom you want to marry type thing. But then you go to Psalm 7, for example, and it says that God is a man of war. God is a just judge. God is angry with the wicked every day. So those have to fit together. God is all of those at the same time completely and fully. So so what I want to show you here is that Pelagius is making assumptions. And that's a dangerous thing to do. So his first assumption is that God's righteousness and justice is the most important part of God. So he's not going sideways yet, but just wait and see. His second assumption Everything God creates is good. Well, of course. Have you read Genesis 1? And God saw that it was very good. But what does he mean? For the human, 
when Pelagius says everything God creates is good, he has another assumption in that. Here's his assumption. He believes that for the human, freedom is our supreme good. So he reads Genesis 1, and God saw that it was very good, and he says, that means human freedom. Does the text say that? I know it's not open in front of us. The answer is no, it does not. So he's going to say, for the human, freedom is the supreme good, the glory and honor of man, the fundamental good nature that God gives us. And this supreme good cannot be lost. And he's going to say, freedom essentially consists in the freedom of choice. And the absolute, and this is so important, the absolute equal ability at every moment to do good or evil. Well, that's a lot to get from the word good. So note then that he's defining good as the ability or the possibility to choose good or evil freely. And note that good nature means freedom of choice. And freedom of choice, again, is that I can, with absolute equal ability at any moment, choose to do perfectly good or perfectly evil. That's his second assumption. This is his theology. Assumption three. A premise three. As created, one's nature cannot be changed essentially. The word essentially there is a, is a technical word. Um, what he means is that when God creates your nature perfectly free to perfectly choose evil or to perfectly choose good, that can't be changed. When God makes you like that, there's nothing else that you can, you can change into. So for him, just by way of some, to see where we're going, when a person sins, the nature of his will undergoes no change and no deformation. There's, he, he means that there's no inherent corruption in man. There is no predisposition or inclination to sin that is itself a result of sin. Every act of sin flows from a fresh beginning, a clean slate, a blank tablet, the tabula rasa. Since the good nature of a person cannot be changed. Uh, I'm going to give you a punchline to this. Okay, One, that's not true. Uh, but two, when I read these things, I want you to think about what our culture says about the nature of humanity. And whether you're politically a classic liberal, not meaning on the left liberal, but just classic liberalism, the foundation of our political order as a constitutional republic, whether you're a humanist or a scientific materialist, these things that he's teaching here 
is the essence of the spirit of our age. But keep going because these all link together. And his fourth premise is that human nature is indestructibly good. So what can happen is your behavior might change when you're sinning. But these actions don't change your nature from its good freedom. So this is what, this, this, is, this is unbelievably important. I'm, I'm going back to number three. When he says this last line, every act of sin flows from a fresh beginning, a clean or blank slate. That means that you are in this moment, I'm giving you a spoiler alert, that we're always like Adam in the garden before he sinned. We have this blank slate nature. And that we can then choose to sin or choose not to sin. But when we choose to sin, it doesn't change our nature. So once I'm done sinning, I go back to a perfected state. And then I can choose to live sinlessly if I want to. And then go back to sin. This is what he believed. Five. Yes, yes, yes. Where does, where does guilt come in? I mean, because there's no guilt. You sin, and you, now you're blank, blank slate. But that's so not true. <laughs> <laughs> you are right. This guy's a heretic. <laughs> yes. Um, I, I have not read much of his writing, but guilt does not come up. If it does, like most heretics, he's going to use Bible words with different definitions. So maybe we'll detect some of that as we, as we keep going. Uh, so human nature is indestructibly good. So when we sin, it doesn't change what we are. Number five, evil is an act we can avoid. So now he's starting to make conclusions. If one is true and two is true and three is true and four is true, now he's getting to his therefores. Therefore... Evil is an act we can avoid. So this premise follows Darth Pelagius's previous four assumptions. In other words, given his views so far, uh, he concluded that God would be sin and God would be the author of evil if he allowed unrighteousness or injustice to take place. And therefore, human nature could not change to evil because he assumes nature can't change. Let's keep going. So this is, this is our day and age. Sin, number six, comes via satanic snares and sensuous lust. What does this mean? He means because our hearts are always blank slates, even after we sin. And because we have good natures, he says sin is not inside of us. Sin is outside of us. It's environmental. It really is. I don't mean waterfalls or the temperature in Phoenix. I'm talking about your social environment. So he says that sin is external to us, not internal. Our greatest problems are outside of us, not inside of us. Yes, Hannah, are you in labor? 
Which, by the way, if you go into labor, you don't need to raise your hand. <laughs> Feel free. Um, did the Church of Christ get all their ideas from this guy? Because it sounds just like the Church of Christ. Um, ultimately, yes. What's, uh, maybe I'll work on it and I'll, I'll give us notes next week, something that we won't go into, but a, a, something else is going to... F- come from this called semi-Pelagianism, right? So there's going to be a council and this is going to get branded as, as heresy. Then, a, then the, the human addiction to wanting to be that clean slate and my problems are outside of me, I'm not responsible, it's outside, is always going to be the human condition. And Pelagius is going to teach us that we take credit for our salvation. And that's something also every human being ultimately wants to do. When, even when we become believers. And so there are, um, at a pew level, a lot of believers assume these things that he's teaching. Um, and there are some theological nuances they get into in semi-Pelagianism that still ultimately makes man's will and heart the ultimate sovereign in the universe, not God. We'll, we'll, we'll get to that um, sometime. So when I say yes to your question, Hannah, I'm not, I, I'm not, I haven't studied all of their doctrine. I just know that this teaching is the kernel from which this plant grows into a whole bunch of different forms. So because our problems are outside of us, he taught we can overcome Satan by exercising virtue, high moral standards and holy living. This leads to the next one, number seven. This means there can be sinless men and sinless women. We, he teaches, do not have a sinful nature. He teaches there is no original sin, i.e. a corrupt nature that has been passed on to us in the fall. He then teaches... Adam was created free uh, with a free will and natural uh, holiness. That's true. Kind of. We'll come back to it. Adam sinned through free will. We would agree with that, but rightly defined. But here's what he says. Yeah, Adam sinned, but then when he swallowed the pomegranate, I think it was a pomegranate. When he swallowed the apple, um, I think it's a pomegranate because they had to put pomegranates uh, on the robe of the priest and then put bells in it so that when he walked around, you could hear him. And of all the fruit, God could choose why that one. And since the high priest was stylized as a Adam going back into the Garden of Eden when he go into the temple, that's just Dave. That's Dave's speculation. Anyways, so when Adam sinned, it didn't change him. So sin did not result in the corruption of his or human nature, Pelagius taught. Sin did not result in natural death because Adam had been created mortal, he taught. 
I mean, did this guy read his Bible? But anyways. And then finally, he also taught under this idea that Adam, number nine, sin did result in spiritual death, which was not a loss of moral ability. He remained the clean slate. Or spiritual death did not mean an inherent corruption, only the condemnation of the soul. I don't know what he really means by that. What are you condemned then by? It's his. It's just not um, his. It's just not clear. Number ten. Adam's offspring, human beings, did not inherit natural death or spiritual death. In other words, he teaches that all naturally die simply because we were created immortal as humans. Not because Adam's sin or our own sin. Okay, just by way of reminder, remember, Adam was created immortal. And then when death entered, death meant two things for Adam. Spiritual death and physical death. And remember, death means separation. Spiritual separation from God, and then ultimately physical separation of his physical part from the non-physical part into the grave... So that when you're resurrected, it's the re, you're undead, your reunion of the material and immaterial part of you. Any questions on that since that's not in the notes? If any spiritually die, it's because they freely choose to sin, he taught. So does that mean that if you are sinning when you die, then you go to hell, but then in the moment you choose not to sin, you don't? It's just his his salvation is not clear. Or what we need to be saved from necessarily. It's going to get better as he gets worse. Number 11. Neither Adam's sin nor his guilt was transmitted to people. Pelagius regarded these teachings as evil. For Pelagius, Adam was not a representative of the human race. He wasn't our covenant head. He wasn't, the word federal means covenant. So he wasn't our federal head. Um, And there's no fundamental connection between you and Adam. So that means that in one sense, every single one of us at any given moment is Adam and Eve in the garden because we have that blank slate. In any given moment, we're choosing either to not eat the fruit or to eat the fruit. So he teaches. All men, number 12, are created as Adam was before the fall. So in a real sense, I just said this. He viewed every person basically as another Adam. The difference is that it's, the difference between us and Adam and Eve is it's easier for us to sin because of our environment. We are born infants. We need to grow and learn and mature. Our environment is not an idyllic paradise. We live in an environment where evil prevails. He says the primary reason sin is so abundant is environmental, our relational surroundings, and then we imitate sinners around us, and then he was, we build habits or addictions. So the reason people get more or less sinful is they're habituated. They just become addicts to their sin. That's why they're sinful. Uh, 
I mean, this teaching is the premise of all Christian self-help. It presumes you don't need God's intervening grace. Sorry, I'm cheating. I can't help myself. This is so horrible. This is really bad teaching. Number 13, and we're going to go to 18. The habit of sinning habituates, trains, addicts that we will, so it'll be easier to choose sin. But again, every time you sin, even if you do it all the time, you still have a good nature. You're good on the inside. Number 14. Now here we get into his grace. Not, not his understanding of grace, I mean. So what's grace for Pelagius? Number 14. The grace of God facilitates goodness, but is not necessary to achieve it. For Pelagius, God's grace is not unearned and undeserved favor that saves dead sinners. That's the truth. No, for Pelagius, grace is your personal assistant. It's your helper. It makes it easier for you to be righteous on your own. And we do not necessarily need God's grace since we can choose to be fully righteous on our own. But grace helps in some way to overcome habits of sin. So if you want to, do you need help getting out of that pool you're stuck in? Reach out to God's grace. This is so horrible. The grace of this number 15, the grace of creation yields perfect men. It seems for Pelagius that grace is mainly the gift of our creation when we're made and those free wills that are blank slates that can choose good or evil whenever we want to. That's what grace mainly is for him. It's happened, you exist because of God's grace and that's basically it. But if you want him to help you in life as your sky therapist, personal assistant, then reach out and grab a gracious hand. Number 16, the grace of God's law illumines and instructs. What he means by this is that in order to be virtuous in classic Greek philosophy, you had to have the ability to obey and the moral power to obey. And you needed to know what to obey. So he says, well, the Bible is just God telling us what we need to know so that we can obey it. Um, and that's really nice of God to give us his Bible because we can be a little bit more virtuous. And here's we get into his doctrine of salvation. For him, number 17, the gospel for Pelagius is Christus exemplar. Christ the example. Why did God the Son become incarnate? Because remember, he agrees with the Nicene Creed. He says yes and amen to it. But for him, he says, well, why did Jesus die? It was not to atone for your sins on the cross. It was not because Jesus is the last Adam doing what the first Adam didn't do so that he could save us and we could be transferred into his kingdom. That's not why Jesus died. Jesus uh, maybe died to conquer Satan a little bit. But for Pelagius, here's why Jesus died only. To set you an example to say, you can do it. You can do it. Pull yourself up by those bootstraps. Need a gracious hand, I'm here to help, but you don't really need me. 
Now, Chris's exemplar is true. Christ, one of the reasons for the incarnation and one of the reasons why he went to the cross. Peter tells us in 1 Peter, we're going to learn in our series, that Christ is our example to follow him in his suffering to the point of death, but not the way that Pelagius defines it. Um, and finally, and I'll take some questions, grace, what's this, let's see, yeah, and the grace is given, number 18, according to justice and merit, what one deserves and is earned. So grace is not a free gift of God. The more virtuous you are on your own, the more God's grace meter to you goes up. So you really do need to clean yourself up to come to Jesus then the more you can clean yourself up, then he'll give you more grace to help you out. But only if you want it. You don't need it. Remember, you're Adam in the garden, clean slate every time. So if you want to, you can, you can have his grace. Okay, enough of that junk. Any questions about Pelagianism? In this picture of the human free will and human nature that does not need God... And if it does want God, he's a personal assistant, right? God is my co-pilot. Yes, Porter. Two-part question. First, would you say that Gnosticism is kind of an underlying this, this whole idea that um, the inner us, the spirit, is good, where he's saying the flesh, our outward surroundings, can lead us to sin? And then second question, um, would you say that the teachings of Pelagian influenced the Enlightenment in some way, maybe inadvertently? Number one, smells like it. Number two, yes. It smells like Gnosticism. Um, and that, that's one of the things that we've... Good question, Porter. Questions. One of the things that we need to be reminded of is even though these heresies have old, crazy names, we knew ultimately that not just false religions are demonically inspired, but so also false philosophies and heresies, right? Corinthians tells us that Satan takes people captive to do his will. And so part of the plausibility of Christian cults, the plausibility of Islam, Buddhism, there are going to be nuggets and kernels of truth. There's going to be plausibility that it kind of seems like this is how the, word, the world works, and it's going to smuggle in Christian truths. So when you ask, is Pelagianism Gnosticism? I would say probably, because it's just going to be repackaged under a different name with a different flavor, but it's still ice cream, if that makes sense. So we're covering all these crazy named heresies because most of all of them, in some way, are still alive today. I, I, I saw it. I forgot to take note of it. But you can, I think you can, it's like Gnosticism.com, and you can join Gnostic clubs. I mean, it's, it's alive and well uh, right now. So, and did it influence the uh, Enlightenment? I think so. I mean, those, those tenets of the, the, the notion that we as humans can really, on our own, without God, create heaven on earth. That is what... That is what classic liberalism flowing out of the Enlightenment wants to do. We don't need God. We can have a secular society. There's no such thing. We don't need God, they would say. And we, if we can just get educated, and if we can 
fix our environment, then things will be better and we will attain utopia. Read the philosophers. That's, that's what it is. And so uh, Pelagius didn't invent it, but he's given a lot of content to it. Really good questions. Yes. Yes. Miss, Miss Julie McDonald. Um, well, just one comment. This just so appeals to the pride of man. I mean, it's, you know, and, and we all struggle with the pride of man. So, so this is like, wow, I can do this. I can do that. And look at this. And so, but my question is, did he have many followers? Yeah. And he still does. Um, I mean, was he a big problem in that at that time? Or did they just nail him early? Yeah, he, he was. He, so, well, thank you. We'll get to that in the next few points. Um, I'm going to make a quip. Here's my quip. I think that when we are all born again and we're brand new infants, we're Pelagian to the heart. Why did I get saved? I chose God. I wanted to. I went to church. I did it. I got saved. Uh, And then I functionally think, oh, no, I've fallen into sin. I need to clean myself up. And if I do decide to run to the cross, I just need God's help to clean me up. But really, I'm in charge of this whole project. That's all just Pelagianism. Versus... Going to the cross and saying, Lord, unless you change me, I cannot be changed. Um, it's, all of, it's all of God. We're going to discover later. So just if, uh, yeah, no, yeah, more questions. Sorry. Um, just a quick, I'm just wondering, did repentance come into any of his thoughts or teaching? Because obviously Jesus said, repent. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I, that might not have been in his Bible. I didn't. I tried to read as little of him as possible, which is not being intellectually honest, but I, I didn't come across anything that described him talking about that. But he had to have somehow, because he, he, somehow he did. Uh, he, I mean, we are, remember at the beginning, his initial motive was good. He saw the sin in Rome and was disgusted and wanted to live holy lives. It's just his understanding of humanity. So he would have called people, you need to stop doing that and start doing this. So, so there would have been some type of repentance, but it would have been defined as more of, you know, lean into that free will nature that you have and lean into that Adamic, the Adam-like part of you. Something like that, I don't know. Any other questions on Darth Pelagius? So he was, so 383 is when he got to Rome. Well, uh, the Germanic Visigoths, the Vandals, they took Rome in AD 410, the year 410. So Pelagius and his key disciples and more, who were more extreme versions of himself, Colestius, fled to Northwest Africa. And there they unexpectedly met with arguably the greatest Christian mind outside the Apostle Paul, Augustine. They flew into his trap. Notice how nicely, and we've been talking about this, 
Pelagianism fits with contemporary humanistic, classically liberal perspectives, which we're all taught. Humanity is fundamentally good. Our problems are outside of us. We have the power and wisdom on our own, and without God, we can achieve heaven on earth. There's, there's Pelagianism. We are five minutes over time. Well, leave you on some heresy. Don't believe any of that stuff. Let me pray for us. And then if you have any questions, I want to let you go. Uh, it's open season on anything that we've talked about so far. Uh, let, me, let me just pray if you need to go. If you do need to go, please go out into the hallway. Uh, don't touch anything in Jesus' name. Thank you. Uh, but uh, if you want to stay, happy to answer questions. Lord, we um, just once again, we thank you. We thank you for the beauty, the lyrical, poetic nature of the Athanasian Creed, which, which wonderfully sums up all that we have seen so far in these 450 years of the early church. And Lord, as we turn our attention to this final topic of what it means to be human, how you made us, what our nature is, what free will means, what happened to Adam in the fall, what happened to us in the fall, what happens to us in the gospel. Lord, we want to understand what your word teaches so that we can rightly praise you and thank you for how kind you are for loving sinners like us who were once dead in our trespasses and sins, once lost in the dark, but you have brought us to the light. So we praise you, Lord. We pray this in Christ's name. Everyone said, amen. If you want to stand and ask questions, I've got time. Youth group's going on. Thank you for thanking me. You're welcome. Yes, Isaac, do it, buddy. Yeah, and if you're getting to this, maybe you're getting to this later, but you mentioned semi-Pelagianism and... Wondering if there are other views beyond Augustine and Pelagian, Pelagius about the will, which may or may not fall into heresy or orthodoxy. Or yeah, is that a thing? there? There is a. It's the only well. <clears throat> it's the only book I know of its kind, and it is called "Willing to Believe." And the subtitle is The Controversy Over Free Will. And it's written by R.C. Sproul. But what he does is he will actually go through, he starts here with Pelagius versus Augustine and goes all the way up to um, Charles Finney. He goes all the way up to the 1800s. And he basically sets it out, this guy versus this guy. And he shows how the debate evolved, for lack of a better term. And he does get into to, uh, John Wesley, and John Wesley was Pelagian, and John Wesley founded Methodism, Methodist churches. And um, there's, there's gray lines on this sem- semi-Pelagianism idea. Wesley taught that, Wesley taught, well, Pelagius was wrong, but he still wanted to guard the idea that we have a free will that could choose the good or the evil unaided by God. So that means that my will is ultimately the decider of salvation, not God. So I'd say the Lord is, or salvation does not belong to the Lord, it ultimately belongs to me. 
And so, so Wesley invented a word called prevenient grace, and it means grace that goes before. So somehow, in some way, when Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave, God gave a measure of grace, just enough, just enough grace to help your heart, but not move your heart. And I don't know how that works. So that you would freely choose God while you were still not born again, still dread, dead in your trespasses and sins, and still in the darkness, not the light. Um, and I think that that's biblically false. And we're, we'll, we'll get into that a little bit, just at least some of those things. So, uh, but there are within the bounds of orthodoxy some understandings, and so I, maybe this week I can do some work and just put up some stuff for us to understand that better. Yeah, yeah, good question. Good question. Yes? So in this creed tonight, this is the first time that we've heard um, something about, well, it says, at his coming, all people will arise bodily. So there's resurrection mentioned in the previous creeds, but not, you know, that, I guess, that many details. So this is my question. It might be too far out, and you might say, I'm, we're not going to go there, but um, I've, I've tried to get an answer from this, but I never get a really good answer or, or somebody that will really seems to, I don't know, the rapture. When did the, when did the idea of the rapture come in? Sometimes people say, oh, that was at the early church. The early church believed that. During this time, they believed it. And then other people say, the rapture, that thought did not come in until the 1800s. And, and I, so what is, that's my question. Thank you, Julie. (laughs) I wanted you to ask a question and I said it was open season. You have any tag you want. So you played the dispensational tag. So the, the, um, I want to be careful how I answer that question. Because it's actually derived from the Greek text itself, harpazo, which you read like in Thessalonians. This the idea of rapture. It means caught up. But there is debate on what is meant by that word. And so I just, I'll, I'll just say, I'll say this without giving a good answer. So I'm kind of doing a big dodge of your answer because I don't want to misrepresent any positions and I haven't studied deeply the understanding of the rapture in early church history but everybody is going to appeal regardless of your position to the both the bible and early church history because there's enough broad belief that there's people who believed whatever we're looking to find the question is how prominent was that particular doctrine in that era so there, there certainly were people who would have thought that Jesus is going to have a secret return that will bring us into the air. Um, but beyond that, I don't want to go much further without, I don't want to misrepresent positions without knowing the history. But your lead up to that question about the observation about the resurrection there, you have to think about one of the things that's interesting. Th- these statements are hammered out in the context of a heresy. So all their attention is, is focused on this particular issue, whatever that issue is. So if you remember in the Apostles' Creed, when they said, like, you know, we believe in the Father, we believe in the Son, 
and they, and they said all these things about the Father and the Son. They said, and the Holy Spirit. And that's all they said about the Holy Spirit. He got not very much airtime. And same thing with the resurrection. They didn't really talk about everlasting punishment and the consequences for not believing the gospel. And part of that is because it's not they didn't believe it. It just wasn't the questions they were trying to answer. And so from our perspective, I would think, guys, you could add maybe another sentence, maybe something about repentance and faith in the gospel, but it was just where their attention was. So I, so it's a little bit of a, a defect to them not having it in there. And that's why later on, especially in the Reformation, whether it's the Lutherans or Presbyterians or Baptists, they're now writing confessions, longer statements that give a lot more detail on the finer tunings of what makes a Baptist a Baptist and a Presbyterian a Presbyterian. So in one sense, their aim is to preserve who God is. I would have liked for them to do a little bit more on justification by faith. And because they didn't, you get into confusion with Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy that's going to contribute my works to my salvation. Good question. What else? Any, any, other, any other questions I can dodge? Going once... Well, if you want, read ahead in your notes, twice and sold. If you go ahead and read in your notes, uh, and we'll pick it up next time and get into how Augustine counteracted Pelagius. Lord, we love you. Once again, dismiss us with your blessing. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.